Stuart. Well, hi. How are you doing, Matt? I'm okay. How's, uh, Paul's not How here. are the cats? <laughs> I don't have cats. Uh, <laughs> I think oh, you know that. Sorry. <laughs> my, my wife is allergic to cats. I think the kids would probably like having pets, but uh, we don't have any pets. Well, if they heard this episode, they're going to beg you for a cat next. <laughs> they, they might. I, I hope they don't listen now. Uh, how yeah. are your cats, Stuart? I believe you have several. Uh, I, I have a few. I don't know where they're at half the time. We do have coyotes around here. Have I told you about that? Yeah, I think you've had several cats eaten by coyotes. We are really, people are tuning out by the second. Uh, this this episode is about stroke, uh, but Stuart, why don't you tell them- Of which I think I had one. Uh, yeah. Why don't you tell them uh, what we do on this show, and then I can introduce our co-host. Sure. So we are the Curbsiders. This is the intermittent the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring up clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And in the uh, air of full disclosure, we tend to talk about uh, maybe some things that aren't quite related to the subject at hand for the first five, 10 minutes. You can certainly fast forward. We know about uh, 4.2% of you tend to do that, but beyond that, all the rest of you stick with us. Yes. There's, there's timestamps for uh, to make that easy for you to do. And I would love to uh, reintroduce our returning guest. Molly's been a guest expert. She's co-hosted. She's been on a ton of shows now. I've lost count how many. Dr. Molly Hoyblind. Happy to be back. And I said your name right, didn't I? You did. Thank you. <laughs> I listened back to a, few, a previous episode where I think I said your name right, and then you immediately accused me of not saying it right. <laughs> but anyway. That's cool. That's I think I've that. just heard you say names so much. So- so many times wrong i was ready yeah but i i built i have a, to admit when i re-listened i i did have to admit it sounded right so <laughs> okay so you're i will admitting. i will take the blame for that one yes <laughs> i thought it was a fun moment so i don't blame you uh but molly why don't you tell them a bit about the episode and and our wonderful guest Sure, yeah. We uh, have Dr. Chris Favilla with us tonight. Um, And in this episode, we cover all about outpatient management of TIA and stroke. So he does a great job explaining what a TIA is, um, kind of working, uh, walking us through the stroke workup and thinking about the pathophysiology of stroke and how that would lead us to look for different causes. And then we touch base on different medications to prescribe to um, reduce the risk of a recurrent stroke. Dr. Chris Favilla went to college at Penn, medical school at University of Florida, and then returned to University of Pennsylvania for neurology residency and stroke fellowship. He stayed at Penn as a clinical research fellow and then as faculty of the stroke division. He splits his time between clinical and research efforts. His clinical expertise is in the acute management of stroke patients, and his research goal is to personalize clinical management based on bedside physiologic measurements. He is developing a non-invasive cerebral blood flow monitor for real-time monitoring of stroke physiology. He had an NIH R25 grant in support of some of his earlier efforts, and now an AHA Career Development Award to monitor cerebral blood flow during mechanical thrombectomy. Do you know what kind of athlete makes the best kind of neurologist? Uh... 
You don't a have swimmer. to answer that, Molly. <laughs> a, a swimmer, because I have to learn all about strokes. <laughs> Get to slip a couple in there this time. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. Not bad. It's not bad if I don't say so myself. Not bad. Okay. Chris, uh, thank you for coming on the show. I wanted to ask you, can you give the audience a one-liner? Let them know a little bit about yourself. You can include something outside of medicine as well. Great, Matt. Thanks for having me. I appreciate joining you guys. Um, I'm a stroke neurologist at the University of Pennsylvania. I split my time between clinical work and clinical research. Um, But outside of work, I guess I spend the vast majority of my time these days playing with my eight-month-old daughter. And when I'm not, um, to the my, my, my wife's disapproval, I spend the majority of my time outside of that uh, doing home renovations and, and sort of work around the house. I, I'm, sh- I'm shocked that your partner is complaining about home renovations. Like I would, I would love someone to renovate my home for me. I know that's, that's what I sort of would have assumed was the case, but it seems like it's more of a time commitment issue when I spend all my waking hours sort of working in the basement or with <laughs> machinery out in the backyard rather than sort of quality time issues. I think that's where the issue arises. I see. I mean, a one month old, like how much can they really do? They kind of just lay there. So (laughs) (laughs) suppose that's true, but it seems like that evolves pretty quickly. Okay. Before I get myself in trouble, Molly, Stuart, do you guys (laughs) want to ask anything? Yeah. I guess building off of that, if you're into your home renovations, um, if you didn't have a career in medicine, what do you, what kind of career do you think you'd have? Yeah, and I'm always torn on that. I think either either engineering or teaching are sort of the obvious directions for me. I'm very sort of mechanically oriented. So I think engineering is probably the obvious first first direction. Stuart? Uh, I'm going to take a pass on this one. You're going to take All right, I got one more. Okay. <laughs> uh, if you also enjoy teaching, what's your favorite or best advice that you've received as a teacher? You know, I think the... Uh, the the best advice I've gotten, I think this spans beyond teaching, but it's just focusing focusing on what I love. I think that's true from a teaching perspective. It's true from a an everyday work perspective. It, it probably applies to most most walks of or most days of my life. That you know, if I'm focusing on what I'm loving, uh, I you know tend to be a better teacher in that sense. And if I am, am doing research on what I love, I tend to be a more ambitious researcher. I tend to tend to be more focused. I think that sort of spans across it all. Very good advice. Chris, I wanted to ask you if you had any books that you would like to recommend to the audience. And, and Molly, we'll get a pick of the week from you today as well if you if you wanted to start thinking of one. Okay. Sure. I uh, don't have a tremendous amount of free time for book reading outside of work these days, but the most recent thing I picked up on vacation um, after my, my wife had just finished it was uh, The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. It's actually, oddly enough, I just saw a preview for it, um, I think, yesterday. So it looks like it's coming out in movie form just the same, but it was a, a great read. What's I, I feel like maybe that was recommended before, but I haven't read it. I don't remember what it's about. Can you give just like a, a teaser what is what it's about? Yeah, sort of. It's a it's a young boy in New York who who loses his mother and ultimately gets sort of roped into uh, handling some sort of illegally obtained art and trying to navigate that world as like a young, you know, a young young guy without a mother trying to navigate the world at the same time. Sounds good. Maybe I maybe I'll pick that up on vacation this year. Molly, did you want to recommend anything? 
Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I just moved to the suburbs, so I'm commuting now. So I've been trying to look for books on tape. Uh, and this week I've been listening to Extreme Measures by Jessica Zitter. Um, she's a palliative care doctor who's written extensively about kind of end-of-life care and end-of-life uh, treatment in the United States. And this book is a lot of her personal experiences working as an ICU doctor and then as a palliative care doctor. And just she has a really nice way of writing and then a fascinating perspective about how medicine has evolved and palliative care has evolved over the last 20 to 30 years. Stuart, did you, did you want to recommend no. anything for a pick of the week? I, I'm, I'm going to take a pass on that one too. Lots of I passes tonight. Stuart's recommendation is get a, get a full night's sleep. <laughs> <laughs> right. Very good advice. And that a pillow. Good. Hey audience, let me tell you about our sponsor today. Indeed. If you're trying to build a brilliant AI, then you need a Turing test. But how about if you're trying to hire a brilliant thinker? That's where you need Indeed Assessments. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. You can attract, interview, and hire. And in fact, with Indeed, you can do all your hiring in one place, even the interviewing. They have hiring tools that cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. And with Indeed Instant Match, you get a list of high-quality candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job. With Indeed assessments, choose from 135 skill sets to help make sure you're finding applications from the people with the skills that you need. So you can join the more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash internal medicine. One more time, that's Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Offer valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. All right. Well, th- this is a big topic, so why don't we get why don't we get into the show? I will skip a pick of the week as well. And Molly, can you start us off with a case? Yeah, sure. So we're excited to cover this because it's something we deal with a lot in primary care. Um, and as I was preparing for this talk, you know, we've we've been uh, planning to do this recording for about two months, and I had a patient who came in just as I was working on writing the script. So. Uh, very practical. Um, so our case here from Cashlack is Miss M. She's a 77-year-old woman who um, had an episode about six days ago of noting a gray fog coming over the lower half of her vision in the, her right eye. It stayed there and then lifted up and down for a couple minutes. She ignored it and didn't think it was a big deal, but then it reoccurred the next day. And so she was worried about a retinal tear and saw her ophthalmologist a few days later. Her ophthalmologist sent me a letter of concern that it was amaurosis fugax however you say that, and um, had had her come in for an acute visit with me. Um, the patient has a history of mild hyperlipidemia treated with Prava 10 and mild hypertension treated with amlodipine 5. She'd recently stopped her aspirin due to new recommendations. So to start off this case, uh, could you define what a TIA is for us and what kind of historical clues help you decide when um, an episodic change really is a TIA? No problem, Molly. I'm happy to take a crack at that. So I guess from a definition perspective, a TIA or transient ischemic attack um, should be sort of thought of as a transient neurologic deficit that's attributable to a vascular cause or a specific vascular territory. Um, so the the key things here, I think, whenever you're thinking about a, a TIA is distingu- distinguishing it from other transient neurologic episodes, right? I think in the emergency room, in the primary care setting, you guys are probably used to hearing uh, a myriad 
neurologic complaints, some of which may be sudden onset, some of which may come and go. And it can be very difficult to distinguish a TIA from, uh, you know, any other number of transient episodes. So some of the things that will help really anchor you towards TIA rather, rather than a less concerning diagnosis um, I think first and foremost is the sudden onset of the symptoms, just like Ms. M in the scenario you described, um, or just like in the case of, of almost any vascular event, the neurologic deficit should be relatively sudden and onset and sort of maximal in impact at onset, rather than sort of in contrast to something that slowly evolves or morphs over time. Um, the way, for example, uh, a migraine headache could, or a complicated migraine could, or a seizure could, um, or, or some other sort of non you know, non-vascular related uh, symptomatology. Um, the other important thing is, as I said, sort of as a, it's sort of focal in nature and attributable to a specific vascular source or vascular territory. So again, that helps you distinguish the focality, like in Ms. M's scenario, where there was clear focality in monocular symptomatology, as compared to someone that has more diffuse symptomatology, like confusion or sort of acting funny or not thinking straight. Um, and then finally, the attributable to a vascular territory, a vascular cause is probably sometimes the hardest one to really pin down or think about in real time. I appreciate the fact that, you know, as a stroke neurologist, I think very, I'm used to thinking in terms of vascular territory and what symptoms pertain to specific vessels that might not, you know, come quite as cleanly to you in routine practice as a primary doc or as an internist. But again, sort of at least think in terms of laterality, right? Someone who says, they have some you know, num numbness in their right thumb and some tingling in their left elbow and some funny feeling in their ankle. You can sort of quickly imagine that that doesn't lend itself to a, a single easily localizable territory. It's sort of too diffuse, too scattered. When you say you're thinking of territories, are you kind of like thinking of the homunculus or you, or you just sort of like have memorized like, okay, ACA, MCA, posterior circulation... Uh, can you can you kind of break it down? Like, what are some of the big kind of like in broad strokes buckets that you might group that into? Mm -hmm. um, that's a great question. I think common things being common, I, I sort of have multiple almost tiers of this in my mind without thinking about it. Right? I sort of am thinking of left MCA, right MCA in terms of larger cortical syndromes. Um, left MCA thinking about things like aphasia, right MCA thinking about things like neglect. Think about gaze preferences on either side of the hemisphere. Um, and then I think as I go deeper into the brain, I have a, a similar perspective of what a deep right-sided or a deep left-sided stroke would be, meaning a sort of more diffuse hemiparesis, so sort of something that affects the internal capsule on either side. is going to cause an arm and leg weakness, sort of broadly speaking. If it catches some thalamus in, in the sort of pericapsular region, you get hemisensory loss. Um, the tough part to answer your question, I think, is the truth of the matter is it, it's, it gets pretty complicated as you start to dive deeper. And you can throw a very quick wrench into my question when you say, well, what about the brain? stem, where things become a little bit more murky. And sometimes you can even have bilateral symptomatology with brainstem injury. So I'd say the sort of cleanest way of thinking about it is, is first pass is if it's hemibody sensory, hemibody weakness, hemivision, um, that sort of very easily is, is a definitively localizable to a single vascular territory. That's such a str strange question, Matt. Does anyone think about it like a homunculus? <laughs> uh, I'll actually, I'll actually admit that for um, sort of high cortical strokes, I absolutely think about the homunculus, yeah. um, and that's probably most relevant for um, you know when we talk in in the stroke world about people that have hand knob strokes, where there's a very specific um, sort of knob up on the the precentral uh, cortex where you sort of get this 
very impressive sort of paralysis of the hand and sort of drop of the wrist from a very specific type of stroke. Another thing about the TIA, just to kind of get back to the definition of it, it, it classically wasn't a taught like symptoms last less than 24 hours, but I was reading that the definition has kind of changed a little bit. Can you, t- can you talk about that? Is that important to know? Otherwise we could just skip it. Sure, Matt. The, um, you're absolutely right. The, the classic definition before neuroimaging has sort of gotten to the stage that it has at this point. Um, it was really a time-based diagnosis of 24 hours, but as, as you guys would probably imagine, plenty of folks who have less than 24 hours of symptoms will have strokes on their MRI. And, and really with the widespread application of MR imaging, um, that is what drove the change in definition of TIA to basically being um, transient symptoms without MR evidence of stroke. So basically, if the symptoms were less than 24 hours, but there's a stroke on the MRI, then it is a stroke. Um, mm-hmm. So you sort of, you know, when you when you folks see these patients in your clinic, you're operating under without that piece of data, right? So you're sort of having to use the old school clinical definition of TIA until the MR tells you one way or another. And part of the reason, the sort of backstory on why that is so relevant is that um, in the TIA world, the biggest, and this becomes a really twisted concept, but the the biggest predictor of future stroke risk is whether or not there was a stroke on the MRI or not. So that's like an insane statement to make, right? When we just change the definition of MRI, or we just change the definition of TIA, uh, TIA rather. But um you know, th- this is more applicable to your world, right? When you see someone who has a clinical TIA before neuroimaging happens, that neuroimaging is really, really the most helpful risk stratification tool you have as the next step. So this has always kind of drove me bonkers. So what if I have a young patient with a complex migraine phenomenon that has unilateral symptoms that looks like a TIA, but has a negative MRI, and they typically have these symptoms along with their headache, or maybe there's prodromal symptoms like photophobia or some kind of uh, aura, something that, that, that otherwise points towards like a migraine phenomenon. It, since TIA is more of a clinical diagnosis without imaging findings, uh, how, how, do we, how would we differentiate in a case like that, that it's a TIA and not a complex migraine? Yeah, TIA is one of those tricky ones that's hard to rule out, right? When by definition, it's transient symptoms of the normal MRI, we see a ton of that, that we often call things other than TIA. And I think um, probably the suggestion I would give for complicated migraine in particular is that the first time someone has a complicated migraine, um, it warrants a TIA workup, right? Which is a, a sort of looking for high risk future stroke source, um, which I think we can get into the details a bit, I think, uh, a little bit later in this particular case. Um, But when you come up empty in terms of finding a particular high-risk source, um, that has sort of categorically pushes the patient into a lower risk sector for future stroke risk. And then the real icing on the cake for complicated migraine is, you know, the the context clues that you described where it comes along with an aura, it comes with their typical headache in somebody who's young, has no other high vascular risk. When you're playing in a game of probabilities, that firmly pushes you in that direction without absolute certainty, but very much pushes you in that direction. I think we're all used to operating in probabilities in medicine, whether we we, we think absolutely about it or not. Um, the where it becomes really definitive in these patients is when they have recurrence, right? Someone who has two, three, four, five, six episodes in the same way stereotyped associated with their headaches or their aura, um, that's where you can start to make a really definitive diagnosis. But out of the gate on episode one in the office, it can be really difficult to differentiate with a high degree of confidence. And should, should we just be sending these patients to the hospital to admit them and do that workup? 
You know, I think it depends a little bit um, on the timing and on the particular symptomatology of the patient. So in the case of Ms. M, for example, um, if, if these symptoms were I think there's a couple of things that make me worried about her from a TIA perspective. One is the timing of all of this. Um, so the the risk of recurrent stroke, um, you know, I sort of worry about a little bit more in somebody that's just had a TIA within the past one to two days as compared to somebody who comes into the office and says, you know, this happened three months ago. They've sort of proven to you by not having a stroke in the past three months that that you know, they were in the lower risk category. But when someone has very fresh symptoms and um, you don't know what's going to happen over the next seven days, uh, those are the kind of patients that may warrant closer attention and evaluation in the emergency room. Um, Ms. M had another very high risk feature, which is um, the sort of question of recurrence or fluctuation in the symptoms. Um, so if you take somebody who has a recurrent TIA or two TIAs before they see you in the office, for example, um, that person is by definition, high risk, right? If that is in fact a TIA, they've already had recurrence of their process. Uh, that absolutely warrants more, uh, you know, close and more urgent attention. Um, beyond that, you can use a risk stratification tool, which is uh, sort of applied uh, variably in, in clinical practice, but referred to as the ABCD squared score, mm-hmm. um, which you guys may have come across in right. your in your practice in clinic, but it uses the patient's age, the blood pressure, the clinical features, and the duration of the symptoms to try to risk stratify them as sort of high, medium, or low risk. Um, we all use this, to be honest with you, uh, to varying degrees, right? The, the advent of the ABCD squared score was the idea of people with very low ABCD squared scores had tremendously low risk of future stroke. So somebody who has a, a really low ABCD squared score may have about a 1%, um, you know, one week risk of stroke and, uh, you know, a 2 to 3% 90-day risk of stroke. So, so low that you can sort of encourage an outpatient workup, whereas somebody who scores tremendously high, um, the risk is actually is, is sort of impressive to the point where it warrants a much more aggressive workup in the short term. You know, you, you mentioned that, and then if you were to put her, this specific patient in the ABCD2 calculator, she would only get at most two points. So, so that that to me seems from from what you're saying, you're saying that you would probably admit this patient and go ahead and work work her up. I'm not saying that that I would disagree per se, but uh, and in cases like this, when it recurs, do you just throw the ABCD2 score out or ABCD squared score out? That's exactly right. I think the the ABCD squared score hinges on it being a single TIA. Um, so if it was a single episode of amaurosis, and I, I agree with you, her without knowing her blood pressure, right? She's sort of a one or a two. Um, if this patient came into me and said this happened a week prior and I saw her in my stroke urgent care clinic, um, I would order an outpatient workup. I would not send her to the ER. But if she came in and told me she had, you know, two or three episodes over the past week, um, that's a different story because I think the ABCD squared goes out the window when someone, you know, that recurrent event is what you're trying to predict with the ABCD squared score. And the fact that she's already had recurrence implies she's high risk. And you gave us some information about sort of short-term risk in a week or two and then 90-day risk. Does the risk continue long-term or after 90 days, you sort of think they're back to whatever baseline risk? That's a, a great question, Molly. You know, the, the literature to really support the long, the, I guess, short and long-term risk of stroke associated with uh, correlating with with the variety of ABCD squared scores um, sort of cuts off at that three-month time point. Um, but it absolutely is thought to be a more front-loaded process. Um, like most stroke recurrent events, like this is true in the world of stroke as it is in TIA, is um, the risk of, you know, take a, a, a symptomatic carotid, for example, right? The risk of that symptomatic carotid causing another stroke is very much front-loaded. And as you get into the long run, uh, that, that risk starts to taper off. 
Now, I, I know this, this isn't necessarily in our script, but let's say this patient came in, let's say a month and a half to two months later with new symptoms from a separate, maybe an MCA uh, territory infarct. Would she be a candidate for uh, like emergent thrombolysis in that case? Because that, that, this actually came up a couple of times on the wards. Someone had some vague symptoms about a month ago. They came in, their uh, stroke scale was high enough to suggest that they may have benefited from TPA. And the question was, um, the timing of the the previous symptoms and the new onset of symptoms. Yeah, that's a, a tough question. It sounds like the I think what you're getting at is the fact that um, IVTPA has a contraindication for subacute stroke having happened, right? So the fear being right, that right. the patient experiences subacute stroke, giving them TPA now will increase the risk of hemorrhage into that subacute stroke bed that was brewing. Um, that very much becomes, uh, you know, I think if you're a purist and you want to follow um, contraindications to a T, you sort of ask, you know, you have to very quickly establish that that patient actually legitimately had a stroke before. If the patient had a, you know, this patient, for example, who had a pretty convincing sounding TIA or or sort of amaurosis, um, TIA is not an exclusion for TPA. So uh, I'll give you a really easy example of that. As somebody who comes in with a you know, 30 minutes of right hemiparesis and then comes in the next day with persistent hemiparesis that sort of recurred and stayed. Um, In my mind, I restart the clock for TPA. We have that debate with our residents and fellows all the time where you sort of restart the clock if the TI symptoms return to baseline convincingly and quickly. Mm. You're exposing yourself to some degree of risk because there's no doubt that that TIA came with some small degree of infarct. But without knowing better and without having an MRI to firmly plant your, your feet on, you sort of call that TIA and clock restarts. That is definitely when I consult neurology. Yes, I think that's appropriate. (laughs) So you had started to mention some of the workup for a case like this. And so you mentioned getting an MRI and and looking at the carotids. Um, What other kind of evaluation and sort of how um, do you have an an order of what's most important to do expeditedly? Well, amaurosis in in Ms. M's scenario is, I think, a unique one of TIA where in the vast, vast majority of patients, the culprit is the carotid artery. Um, so carotid imaging in the form of a CTA or an MRA or even just a carotid ultrasound is sort of your number one, two, and three thing to think about. But I think more broadly speaking in the in the world of TIA workup, um, I would encourage you guys to, to sort of think about this the way I explain it to to folks that I work with. And, and honestly, the way I explain it to my patients is that the good thing is in the world of vascular neurology, it's about as simple as neurology gets because it's a plumbing problem, right? There was a blockage in an artery and all you want to do is trace your footsteps through those arteries. So all that really means is intracranial vascular imaging. It means cervical vessel imaging, and it means cardiac imaging. And then the simple blood work to sort of get to the actual fluid component within that plumbing. But it really is that simple, right? It's sort of the heart, the vessels, and the blood. Um, and, and what that means in simplest terms is after the MRI of the brain is pick how you want to image the brain vessels and the neck vessels, right? In, in simple terms, when the patient's in the MRI scanner, that can be an MRA of the head and the neck. In other scenarios, that can be a CTA of the head and the neck. But as I said before, a carotid ultrasound is, is sort of an adequate way to image the carotid vessels as well in many patients. Can you can you speak to the just be specific about the type of MRI of the brain? Is it with and without, or is it can it just be without? Does it matter? 
It, so a, a typical stroke protocol MRI does not require contrast, um, so not a problem in end-stage renal patients. Um, all you really need to do in order to visualize acute ischemia is you need diffusion-weighted imaging specifically. Um, that's to look for an acute stroke. Your flare or your T2 at this point honestly is looking more for old injury or evidence of chronic infarcts in these patients, whether you're looking for evidence of small vessel disease to sort of bolster your claim that this person is a vasculopath, or you're looking for chronic embolic appearing infarcts to help, you know, sort of fuel your investigation for cardioembolism and dig deeper in your cardiac imaging. Um, the flare sort of provides some of that background support, but the DWI, to be honest with you, which you can get in about four minutes, is what's really sort of driving the, the point of neuroimaging. I knew all that. So, you, you did too, right, Stuart? <laughs> Well, I, I always questioned why. So at, at our facility, our TIA protocol is with and without contrast. And I always wonder. Cashlac you're talking about, right? Yes. At Cashlac Memorial Regional Medical Center of the South. <laughs> um, so so our TIA protocol includes with and without contrast. And I always wondered what the contrast was specifically for in this case, since we're getting getting the DWI. Is it just for like a perfusion diffusion mismatch to say, like, can we intervene? Your um, your uh, I share your confusion in the situation. Where I actually it, can't imagine the, what increased information you get from a post contrast image. Does the MRA need need a uh, contrast? You know, it doesn't. You can get an MRA of the head um, okay. with just time of flight imaging. Um, you can MRI the the you can MRI the neck vessels as well without contrast. The quality of that is suboptimal and would be much better with contrast. But brain vessel imaging doesn't necessarily need contrast. Yeah, maybe mm. maybe Stuart, maybe Cashlack is I'll using to, it for the MRA of the neck. Then maybe that's that's what, what I think. That that's what I think because it, they 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 do uh, both, they do both head and neck with that. Uh, I don't know. It's very possible that it's for the the MRA component in the neck then more than anything yeah. else. And you are right when you mentioned the perfusion comment earlier. Um, you know, for certain perfusion modalities, the most common of them, you certainly would need a gadolinium or another MR based mm -hmm. contrast agent. But hard to imagine how a perfusion imaging is applicable in a TIA workup of, of most yeah. situations. Yeah, there was a uh, the 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 uh, facility that I trained at. Um, we had a neurointerventionalist who wanted. Uh, both a perfusion and diffusion to check for mismatch up to 12 hours afterwards to see if they could intervene. But, uh, well, after any kind of, uh, uh, TIA or stroke, I, I, I don't know specifically if it was, uh, just stroke or if it was TIA and stroke. I had to go back and take a look at the protocol. I see. Yeah, perfusion imaging these days, right, over the past few years, the hot topic in acute stroke treatment being um, that of endovascular therapy or mechanical mm -hmm, right. thrombectomy has totally changed the, our approach to, um, to acute neuroimaging in the context of stroke alerts. Yeah. Um, but really, that, that the evidence to support that is in patients with substantial stroke deficits right. where there's a suspicion for large vessel occlusion and there's demonstrated evidence for revascularization or for endovascular therapy. Yeah. So that shouldn't really extend itself to TIA, I guess, to be... Yeah, I, I think we, I, I think at that time we were more in the middle of a research protocol because this was, uh, I think, 2010 timeframe. So um, s still trying to work out uh, who we could intervene on, who we couldn't. Yep, understandable. And sometimes those sorts of imaging protocols just, you know, work better when you apply them more broadly and do them more and then you get sort of cleaner, consistent data, I suppose. Right. With the TIA, what are you looking for with the MRA of the cerebral vessels? I mean, do you act differently if there is significant stenosis within the brain? Yeah, I think if, if you know, for example, you have a patient, this is a little bit harder to apply to, to patient Miss M who has 
uh, ophthalmologic symptoms in terms of hyperperfusion, but somebody who has, for example, a left MCA TIA and has left MCA stenosis on that MRA, you found your smoking gun, right? You can you can sort of say we have our culprit. This patient has intracranial atherosclerotic disease as the likely etiology for their stroke, assuming the rest of their workup is otherwise bland, um, and that that gives you a focus for treatment, right? Then your 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 secondary stroke prevention really emphasizes um, that atherosclerotic source. I wanted to try to recap what we've talked about so far. So you, you basically told us someone comes in with a TIA. We, we don't know for sure that this wasn't a stroke until we get the MRI to see if, they, if they've actually had an infarct because I guess the reading between the lines there is that somebody that has what used to be called a TIA, like symptoms last less than 24 hours, they could have had an infarct. They just don't have like a lot of clinical symptoms that, that they're noticing. And then we're going to get, when we order the imaging, we're going to get an MRI of the brain without contrast. We can get an MRA or a CTA to look at the vessels of the brain and the neck. And uh, then we can get, if we want to, we can also get a carotid ultrasound to look at the carotids. And I think we should talk about any other workup that you would recommend for, for these patients. That sounds great. And I think you're on the right track there, Matt. I think the only thing I would, I would, I would, tweak there is you don't also need the carotid ultrasound. I think if you've got the CTA or the MRA, you've got your your cervical imaging covered. There's no need to sort of duplicate. Um, also sort of worth pointing out that one of the most common things I come across in terms of um, sort of ordering the incorrect test or not having a complete workup in terms of looking at the vasculature is people will order carotid ultrasounds thinking it's easy, it's non-invasive, there's no contrast needed. And the important thing is to remember in that plumbing analogy I gave you before, it's important that you're looking at the vessels that are actually relevant to what you want to look at. So somebody who has amaurosis or an MCA syndrome or an anterior circulation syndrome, the carotids are a reasonable thing to do, um, you know, in lieu of an MRA or a CTA, but somebody who has a clear posterior circulation episode, so somebody who has uh, hemifield loss in vision or somebody who has a cerebellar syndrome, for example, um, you really want to look at the vertebrobasilar system at that point, the posterior circulation. So when you're looking at the neck vessels in those particular patients, carotids don't do you much good, right? They're sort of looking at unrelated territories. And in those posterior circulation patients, a CTA or an MRA is really necessary. So I, I often sort of suggest to folks that if that that subtlety is going to be a source of confusion and you worry that by ordering carotid ultrasounds, you may be missing posterior circulation disease in people. CTA or MRA is a, an adequate thing to sort of keep as your go-to move because you see both the anterior and the posterior circulation at that point. Yeah. I, I want to make sure I'm under. So who is the, pa so the MRI without contrast, that's looking at the brain parenchyma. We're looking if there's any infarcted tissue the CTA, the MRA or the CTA is looking at the, the vessels in the brain and the neck. A, a patient without a suspicion for posterior circulation, can you get by with just carotid ultrasound and an MRI of the brain? Yeah, I think that's actually completely reasonable. Okay. So okay. Ms. M, I think the case scenario presented by Molly earlier, you'd actually be 100% in the right to get an MRI of the brain um, and a carotid ultrasound in that patient. So there was actually a prior episode that we had that suggested that most accurate for a posterior circulation stroke was actually the HINTS exam versus an MRI of the brain. I want to know if you have any comments specifically on that. Yeah, posterior circulation disease can be really tricky on particularly on hyperacute neuroimaging. Um, the fear is that the rate of 
um, you know, MR negative strokes, or specifically what I mean is somebody who we presume has experienced a stroke, who actually has central nervous system injury, but the MRI just doesn't show the injury, um, that's a dangerous game, right? Then you, you're exposing yourself to a lot of risk and the patient to risk by sort of writing off stroke. Um, and the HINTS exam is sort of a great example of a very simple, straightforward exam that allows you to elevate your suspicion for central nervous system abnormality causing those posterior circulation abnormalities. Um, that is a very specific subgroup of posterior circulation strokes. Um, that's particularly relevant in people who, that's sort of a specific application in patients to present to the emergency room or to your office uh, with dizziness or vertigo as the mm -hmm. question of whether or not they have central versus peripheral vertigo, which right. is admittedly a, a minority, a very small minority of posterior circulation strokes. Yeah. yeah. And for those of you who don't know, the HINTS exam is the Head Impulse Nystagmus and Test of Skew. So H-I-N-T-S. Yeah. And we talked about it extensively uh, on, uh, I don't know, episode 50-ish. We'll link to it in the show notes, but it's it was a good one. <laughs> hey, audience. Our sponsor today is Kalo, Q-A-L-O. They are the makers of the original silicone ring. And as I've talked about on the show before, ever since med school, I've had this irrational fear of a condition called wedding band avulsion, right? Because I have an active lifestyle, working out, doing projects around the house, some light carpentry now and then. And, you know, I don't want to lose that digit. So for me, Kalo has been a perfect solution. They make beautiful, comfortable, stylish silicone rings and they sent me a whole bunch so I can mix it up every day if I want to. I love wearing these things. And, you know, my irrational fear, it's, it's not in play when, when I'm wearing a Kalo ring. Our listeners can get 20% off at Kalo.com slash curb. So head to Kalo.com slash curb and get 20% off your purchase today. That's Q-A-L-O dot com slash curb. And that 20% discount will automatically be applied at checkout. One last time, kalo.com slash curb. And protect those digits. You don't, you don't want to lose a digit. Chris, I wanted to ask to get back to the workup. So we, we, we talked about the imaging piece there. I think we feel comfortable there. Coming in the door, most of these patients are going to have had an EKG where do you where do you lie on like getting echoes for all these patients? I, I feel like a lot of echoes get done for anybody that has like even a whiff of like a TIA or a stroke. Yeah, I think uh, uh, for a stroke workup, one hundred and ten percent warrants uh, an echocardiogram. Um, a TIA workup as well, because again, I think in in my mind, I don't view my TIA workups as tremendously different from my stroke workups. I mean, in reality, a TIA is a stroke that was just fortunate enough to dissolve fast enough that it didn't cause lasting injury. But mm -hmm. fundamentally, you know, the first the first portion of that physiology was quite the same as a stroke, um, and I think it, it warrants being treated quite the same way. Um, so I, I would sort of encourage you in the, in the spirit of being cautious, um, is an echocardiogram is absolutely warranted if you're going down the full TIA workup. I think where things get a little bit um, overused is when we throw TIA workups at folks who probably, you know, where we're sort of, we're, we're liberally applying the term TIA, right? Somebody who had the, 
you know, funny, transient, numb and tingly in the one finger. And you say, I don't know what that is, but it could have been a TIA. And then that person gets the, you know, the full million dollar TIA. I think that's where we really over apply this testing as a whole. But in somebody who has a very clear and convincing TIA, um, you know, going down that full pathway, including an echocardiogram is appropriate just because cardioembolic sources of stroke and TIA are quite common. With or without the bubble study? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, the the use of the bubble study, specifically being able to find a patent frame in a valley or PFO, is, uh, you know, really should be reserved for younger patients. And I guess specifically the cutoff I would encourage you to use is 60 because that's that's sort of where it's it's been uh, borne out from the data. So the, uh, you know, this was a, a area of great controversy in the world of stroke where PFOs are common, right? 20, 25% of us. So one of the four of us in this, having this conversation right now probably has a PFO. Um, and we find a ton of PFOs because of all the echoes that we do that Matt just alluded to. Um, so being able to implicate a PFO as the cause of a stroke is step number one. That's hard to do because there's just so many of them. Um, where this has really been shown to be a correlation between the presence of PFO and stroke is in young people with cryptogenic stroke. So that first pushed us into accepting the fact that if one of us, for example, God forbid, had a stroke or a TIA, um, in particular, if we had a stroke and had a PFO, we might be more likely to blame it on the PFO. Next step in this was more recent data, or specifically prospective randomized trial, um, randomizing to medical therapy versus closure. And until a couple of years ago, it was not clear that PFO closure was actually of any benefit whatsoever over medical therapy. So that, again, sort of pushed us away from doing bubble studies so much because we said, who cares, right? If there's not a different treatment, why are we looking? You're getting information you don't know how to handle. Um, but multiple randomized clinical trials a couple of years ago were sort of uh, published at the exact same time uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine, which all sort of demonstrated that there was a small but significant benefit to PFO closure in young patients under the age of 60 who had a very thorough workup and did not have an alternative explanation. So they didn't have a carotid stenosis. They didn't have an MCA stenosis. They didn't have AFib or some low ejection fraction or some other compelling explanation for the stroke. And in those select patients, um, there is a small benefit to PFO closure. So the way I always encourage my team to order these studies is in a 75-year-old, there's no need for a bubble study. In a 50-year-old, there is reason for a bubble study. And how far do you have to go looking into AFib? Do you need 24-hour monitoring, 48-hour, two-week? Yeah, the the duration of AFib monitoring is uh, is absolutely evolving over time pretty rapidly these days. Um, that's particularly true with the more widespread use of implantable recorders that provide sort of easy, long, long-lasting monitoring. Um, but I, I think the answer to that is uh, not set in stone, so not purely borne out in the data, but um, I would sort of say that you have to think about the patient you're monitoring. So a 30-year-old who has a tremendously low risk for AFib or low, low pretest probability of finding AFib may warrant um, you know, monitoring in the hospital or a very brief period of time, but I don't necessarily send every one of those patients home with a, a you know, a 28-day heart monitor. I don't put links in all those patients unless I have a really strong reason to think they have AFib. Um, that's different than the 75, 80-year-old who has a very high risk of AFib, um, and that patient um, I would argue that if there's no source of stroke found, that patient warrants at least a 28-day monitor when they go home from the hospital. Um, and I think there's a growing comfort with implantable monitors these days. So I find myself, and I know my, my partner similarly, um, find ourselves reaching for links more and more common um, just in patients who have a, a difficult time managing the, the external superficial recorders. 
Yeah, so you're talking you're talking uh, a loop, an implantable loop recorder is what you're talking about. Like just putting one of those in if if there's high suspicion for AFib. Yes, and there's tremendous variation in this practice, right? There's plenty of, of stroke neurology practices and cardiology practices where, you know, stroke patients over the age of 60 who don't have a source of stroke found by the time they're ready to leave the hospital, they have implantable loop recorders placed before they ever leave the hospital. So that, that's becoming more and more commonplace wow. for uh, long-term heart monitoring. I want to go back to the echo for a second because I, when I was reading about this, it seems like there's a bunch of soft kind of you know, maybe this was a cardiac source, like people with mitral annular calcifications. Can you talk about like, what do you pay attention to when you're looking at the echo, especially when you're, when you're thinking about stroke or TIA? Yeah, I would encourage you to think of sort of the the glaringly obvious causes of stroke, right? The the tremendously reduced ejection fraction, the left ventricular thrombus, the valvular vegetations. Um, those are sort of the really convincing examples where their findings on the echocardiogram um, that that are very high risks of, of stroke. I think you're right that you know more mild mitral disease or, um, you know, the, the variations in regional wall motion abnormalities you may find in the left ventricle, those more subtle signs are, are sometimes a little bit harder to interpret. Yeah. Um, and I think I would encourage you to probably focus on the more glaring sides rather than um, trying to debate, you know, which wall of the left ventricle is most embologenic if there were to be some abnormalities in its movement that becomes a bit more subtle. Right. Yeah. I think atrial septal aneurysm was another sort of, I, I don't know if, if it's right to call it a soft marker, but... I think that's right. I think those soft markers that you're describing, Matt, if there's a, an ASA or if there's a, you know, mitral calcification or stenosis, right, those things in their own right are not, you're really looking for a reason to anticoagulate a patient or not. And those are subtle enough that they don't clearly indicate anticoagulation for long-term secondary stroke prevention. Another part of this that I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you mentioned, we talked about the heart now, we talked about the vessels, the brain... Uh, what about the blood? What what blood testing are you doing? Thrombophilia workup for everyone? No, I think the things that I would I would encourage you to think about for everyone are looking at lipid panels, particularly with emphasis looking at the LDL, checking a hemoglobin A1C, um, trying to obviously look for either a new diagnosis of diabetes or in those known diabetics the, to try to estimate their degree of control. Um, and I think that that's sort of honestly, if you had to really pare it down and that's all you were getting in any one of your TIA or stroke patients, that would hit a lot of your high points. Um, now, a lot of the stroke workup is is practice dependent and regionally dependent, depending on other specific issues. So I practiced mm-hmm. at the University of Pennsylvania and the West Philadelphia population. Um, historically, there was a, a shockingly high rate of latent syphilis found in patients who came in through um, our local emergency room. So uh, an RPR was checked in essentially every stroke patient because of okay. its relevant uh, its relevance in, in vascular disease um, in its latent form. Um, I argue this all the time about that 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 is a totally irrelevant test in patients um, unless you have reason to dig for it or if you do not otherwise find a stroke etiology. So I'm I'm more of a believer in a stepwise approach and thinking simple is is okay to start and things like a um, a lipid panel and an A1C are a fine starting point. Um, Our patients, you know, the stroke patients I take care of in our emergency room in our hospital almost by default have coags checked in a CBC, um, which I think is also a reasonable place to go because you're you're screening for um, sort of profound hematologic abnormalities that might otherwise predispose someone to a a clotting disorder. Um, But I think beyond that, you don't need to go down the thrombophilia workup unless you're talking about very young patients or you have another reason for a clinical suspicion for some elevated risk of clotting. 
So uh, hearkening back to the China Stroke Primary Prevention Trial that looks more at, uh, um, so it, it obviously it was looking at China, but specifically for those countries that don't have mandatory folate supplementation, if we have a patient who's, let's say, an immigrant from one of those countries, is there any utility of checking a folic acid in those patients? Yeah, you know, there's a, a number of areas in, in folic acids, a good example of them, where it's actually not clear, certainly amongst um you know, how it translates to the average American population of, A, if checking is relevant because it's unclear if supplementation mm-hmm. thereafter actually correlates with reduced risk of stroke. You know, the same debate happens in like in checking methylmalonic acid levels in patients right. um, is where supplementation becomes really unclear benefit. So I think most of us would argue checking it and getting that data is of debated, debatable utility. And uh, in terms of the cholesterol, are you treating to target or you're trying to get everyone on high intensity statins? So, for example, this patient had an LDL of 77 and an HDL of 103, but she's only on pravastatin 10. Does she need to bump up her her dose or you're happy with the numbers? HDL 103. Yeah. Yeah, that's an impressive HDL, huh? That that almost should buy her some room on that LDL. But her LDL is is spectacular, right? If one of you saw her in a primary care clinic, you'd probably be um, very pleased with her LDL in the 70s. Mm. um, You know, what drives the majority of our thought process is the Sparkle trial back in 2006, uh, a trial in which um, nearly 5,000 patients were randomized to high dose of torvastatin versus placebo and demonstrated a very clear um, risk reduction in long-term stroke um, and in fatal stroke, in fact, um, though not an absolute mortality, not not an actual difference in outright mortality, um, a benefit of high dose atorvastatin over placebo. Um, so if you're a purist, you'd say that the best evidence stands in high dose atorva in sort of its largest scale format, and you would transition the patient to that. There's also um, a, a growing body of literature to argue that um, there's sort of competing arguments here. One is to say that that pure answer is just put the patient on the highest tolerated statin. Um, the If you want to play to a goal, um, the goal we would use in its most current format would be an LDL of less than 70. Um, so I think both of those, whether you're a, a play to goal or play to highest tolerated statin, in this particular patient, if you're being cautious, you'd say you bump up her statin one way or another. Um, I'll admit, even if not not clear in the in the evidence. Um, most of us in our practice, in patients who have really well controlled LDLs at baseline, or um, probably the more compelling scenario is when they're when you find an etiology for their event that is not atherosclerotic. So somebody who has you know, AFib and uh, an LDL of 70, right? Does that person warrant such aggressive lipid control when you have another smoking gun that you treated? Um, that's a scenario where I'm very willing to bend and say that we have another smoking gun and I may not push their their statin to an intolerable level. Molly, do you want to finish out this case and then we can go to, uh, we can kind of, maybe we yeah. can talk about antiplatelets in our second case. Okay. Sure, that sounds good. Um well, I, I wanted to bring this one. This this MRI report is actually not from this patient, but it's another one that has always bugged me. So oftentimes we get these MRI reports of, of patients who um, maybe have some risk factors, you know, some maybe some chronic hypertension, um, often migraineurs. But we'll see these um, multiple patchy foci of flare signal and hyperintensity, um, nonspecific and usually attributable to chronic microvascular ischemia. When you get that on an MRI, say in a patient who hasn't actually had a TIA or hasn't actually had a vascular event, um, does that make you more worried or is it just kind of a finding that you ignore? Yeah, that is a common and frustrating finding for all of us. And and the 
the interesting thing about this is that patients who have nonspecific microvascular disease, nonspecific white matter disease, um, actually do have an increased risk of future stroke, right? It's a marker or sort of evidence of their underlying vascular disease to begin with. Um, so I would, you know, just like earlier, we said that the MRI is sort of serving two purposes for you in its simplest forms. Um, the diffusion-weighted imaging is looking for the acute stroke, and the T2 or the flare is looking at sort of the evidence of their chronic injury. And what this is describing is their chronic injury, right? This is the same as if you saw, uh, you know, retinopathy in a hypertensive or a diabetic patient, or you saw evidence of chronic kidney disease on your patient's blood work who has longstanding hypertension or diabetes, right? It's just evidence. It's another piece of evidence of end organ damage from their their vascular risk factors. Uh, so in a patient like, you know, if that were in fact the report for Ms. M, even if she didn't have an acute stroke, that those, those nonspecific flare findings um, just support your investigation for her underlying atherosclerotic disease, her underlying hypertensive disease, sort of just evidence that she's, she's experienced some of those you know, end organ sequelae. Okay, so we we talked about treating her cholesterol kind of based on her risk factors. Um, would you recommend that she start aspirin right away? And would you recommend a baby dose or a full dose aspirin? Yeah, when you see a TI patient in your clinic, whether you refer them to the ER or not, starting an aspirin as you did in this case is absolutely appropriate. Um, you know, the evidence for using full dose, you know, three three twenty five versus um, versus baby dose aspirin is really in the acute setting. Uh, sort of particularly, the evidence is in the acute setting of, of stroke. Um, we're starting with 325 is where the, the largest body of evidence is. So, yeah, so I think that's fine. In the long-term prevention, a baby aspirin is perfectly reasonable thereafter. So I guess our common practice when we come across someone in the emergency room is to you know start them on 325 and then we're ready for discharge. Um, honestly, that specific timing of discharge is for, for no other reason other than the convenience of making the transition, but we'll send people out on 81 milligrams long-term. Um, the, the dosing of aspirin is a, a, a controversial topic these days uh, within the past couple of years with a growing body of evidence to support the fact that there may actually be some value in higher doses of aspirin. Uh, historically, the stroke literature ha has not suggested that, right? A very, very broad range of aspirin dosing has been um, has been studied in the historical literature without a very convincing difference between low and, you know, exorbitantly high doses of aspirin. Um, however, there is clearly an increased risk of, of bleeding and GI complications as aspirin doses incre increased. This has driven most of us to use baby aspirin for long-term prevention. Um, but I will admit that the most recent data, um, particularly in larger individuals, um, would support the idea that there may be some, uh, not only pharmacokinetic, but actually clinical explanation or justification for using full-dose aspirin in some of our, our heavier patients. Um, I, I don't know that that has really permeated practice yet. We've, we've debated this at a couple of journal clubs, actually, at the University of Penn. Um, and there are scenarios in which many of us sort of start to change our practice to, to use full-dose aspirin. But I think, by and large, the vast majority is for still using baby aspirin. And she should continue that indefinitely? Yeah, any TI or stroke patients, short of an alternative, clear, compelling explanation for their vascular event that changes their treatment in a different direction, um, that would be an appropriate long-term secondary prevention strategy. Yeah, okay. So moving on to our second case. Um, so we have another patient here. She's a 67-year-old woman with a history of hyperlipidemia and hypertension who presents to the local hospital with slurred speech and arm weakness lasting an hour. Um, she was admitted, it had been going on for an hour when she presented. Uh, she was admitted for acute stroke management, and she's now being followed with us as the primary care team after discharge to review her ongoing care. Um, so 
we we already talked a little bit in reviewing the TIA of sort of looking at the the whole um, kind of blood flow system to think about where the case of ischemic stroke may have come from. Um, and I think we talked about kind of most of that workup. Are there any additional workups that would be recommended post-stroke that would um, we might not have included in the post-TIA workup? No, I think it's it's sort of the, as I said before, I think to keep it simple, you can think of your TIA and your stroke workup as, as exceptionally similar, right? It's the blood testing, it's the vessel imaging, it's the brain imaging, and it's the heart imaging. Um, I guess I would say that, you know, the it's it's sort of nice and clean when someone comes to you to your office and and has a clearly identified etiology for their stroke, um, and and while I I guess just to be thorough while you know we talked earlier about the sort of plumbing analogy, uh, and I think that's sort of the most practical to think about, um, but you may come across terms that are not you know overtly. Uh, plumbing consistent, and that largely stems from the fact that um, stroke neurologists will categorize their strokes based on uh, a clinical trial back from the early 90s called the TOAST trial. Um, so you'll hear people refer to TOAST classification of strokes, and that the, the, the bins in which strokes were sort of classified were as either cardioembolic, small vessel, large vessel, cryptogenic, or other. Um, the cardioembolic is sort of obvious. The small vessel, it, it refers back to sort of classic lacunar disease or small vessel infarction. Large vessel disease refers to the um, large vessels either intracranially or certainly cervically accounts as large vessels. Um, the cryptogenic and other is where things start to get a little bit dicey. Um, cryptogenic is, is, of course, the term we use for after a thorough workup has been completed and there's no underlying etiology for the stroke that's been identified. That accounts for another 20, 25% of strokes. Um, and then other is a grab bag category, which works for things like carotid dissection, drug-induced, things of that sort. Is ESIS, like the embolic stroke of unknown source, where does that fit in or is that a new term that's come out since that time? Yeah, ESIS or embolic stroke of, of unknown source is really a subgroup of cryptogenic stroke, mm -hmm. um, right? It's basically the patient that had a, it absolutely is someone who has a cryptogenic stroke. It's just specifically taking uh, their, their neuroimaging and saying that, yes, this was cryptogenic, but gosh, it sure looks embolic on this MRI. Um, right, so an easy example of that is somebody who has like bihemispheric strokes and has a negative workup. Um, that would be very compelling ESIS, but in reality, the ESIS term applies to far more than that. Right, anybody with a cortical stroke um, or, or sort of a non-deep small stroke that's cryptogenic um, can start to be flexed in the ESIS direction. I, I wanted to. I promised I was going to ask you about this. Uh, the aortic arch atheromas. That's something that I've seen thrown around. Let's say like someone does a heart monitor, you don't find anything on that. And like, how, how do you make the, how do you decide that that might be where it came from? Is that, is that kind of the ESIS patient? You don't find anything else. You say, maybe this is an aortic arch ath atheroma. Uh, you know, I think aortic arch atheroma doesn't come into the conversation often because we honestly don't visualize the arch terribly well. The majority of our adult patients get transthoracic echocardiograms, which of course doesn't see the aorta terribly well. Um, so a minority of our patients get transesophageal echoes where you really see that arch atheroma well. Um, but I, I don't think of it as a cryptogenic section. Honestly, I think of it as a uh, 
it's almost, you know, it lives between the large vessel atherosclerosis and the cardioembolic world. Pathophysiologically, it's probably a bit more consistent with that large vessel athero people, right? You certainly expect to see the atheroma in the carotid stenosis patients or the intracranial stenosis patients, those with a lot of atherosclerotic disease. Um, and, and when we find it, particularly when we find it in compelling fashion, so you see large mobile atheroma or you see greater than four millimeter atheroma, uh, those are the particularly high risk categories where if you see that on someone's workup, um, it is absolutely appropriate to invoke that as a potential etiology. I would not call that patient cryptogenic once I found that. The Is the idea with large vessel strokes that the plaque is kind of fissuring and there's like clot forming on top of it and then it's flicking off and causing an embolic stroke or, or is it, or is it just that it's, there's a actual thrombosis with like just that completely occludes the vessel? So large artery, um, large artery strokes apply to several different sort of mechanisms by which the stroke may actually occur. Um, you could take carotid stenosis as a common example here, right? You could imagine somebody who has a a ninety nine percent stenosis and actually hypoperfuses through okay. their carotid stenosis. That's sort of mechanism one. Um, as you sort of pointed out, you could sort of acutely thrombose the carotid and occlude the carotid entirely and hypoperfuse past that point, um, or you could. Uh, with thrombus formation and subsequent artery-to-artery embolization have downstream stroke. Um, uh, To be honest with you, I'm not familiar with which one of those is going to be probabilistically the most likely, but my intuition is to say that artery-to-artery embolization from large vessel strokes is going to be far and away the leader in that category. Thank you. Molly, where where do you want to take this next? I know we we probably should start wrapping up in the the near future, but we should talk... uh, yeah, take I us get, away. Yeah, sure. So getting back to treatment options, um, what kind of uh, other antiplatelets do you recommend for patients who've had a stroke? Sure. I, you know, there's there's not, unfortunately, convincing evidence to differentiate one antiplatelet from another when you're talking about using single antiplatelet therapy. Um, unfortunately, if you sort of scour the literature of head-to-head comparisons in randomized trials, you'll find aspirin versus clopidogrel. You'll find um, you know, aspirin versus dipyrimidol plus aspirin. You'll find dipyrimidol plus aspirin versus clopidogrel, these sort of like three-way comparisons historically. And uh, frustratingly enough, there's some suggestion that Plavix might be, uh, excuse me, clopidogrel might be trivially better than aspirin. And then there's suggestion that uh, clopidogrel or, or dipyrimidol plus aspirin might be trivially better than clopidogrel. And then aspirin might be the same as aspirin plus dipyrimidol. So this like never-ending three-way competition, which actually doesn't have any logical outcome at the end of it, um, makes it not clear that there's a convincing difference between single antiplatelet agents. Um if you want to just sort of pull from one study and say that the Capri study, for example, is one clinical trial comparing aspirin to clopidogrel, which showed a very small but statistically significant benefit of clopidogrel over aspirin. Most of us in our clinical practice, the reason you still see so much aspirin use is um, the difference from an absolute, you know, clinically meaningful difference is an incredibly small difference between these, even if statistically significant. And then having to deal with the finances of clopidogrel and having to need a prescription that gets refilled regularly so you don't miss your clopidogrel um, leads most of us to being very comfortable with aspirin as an appropriate choice. A dual antiplatelet is a slightly different debate these days. Um, the evidence uh, for dual antiplatelet therapy is in a couple of realms. Um, the the most, most recent sort of change in clinical practice here is in minor stroke or TIA within the first 24 hours of 
uh, symptom onset. So this is rarely something you should be confronted with in your clinical, in your, your outpatient office, um, but in the emergency room is something you'll see quite a bit. You're saying, uh, so th- this is the point trial, and then I think there was maybe a meta-analysis of just a couple of trials looking at dual antiplatelet therapy, and can you talk a little bit about how long that should be continued for? Sure. So the the CHANCE trial was performed first in uh, East Asian populations and then more recently replicated in the form of the POINT trial, as Matt said, uh, here in the States, and um, both of which were positive in comparing uh, aspirin and copertigol versus aspirin alone for minor stroke and high-risk TIA within the first 24 hours of symptom onset. Um, So if you take the POINT trial, um, which sort of most directly translates to our patient population here in the States, um, the way this was studied was 90 days of aspirin and clopidogrel versus just aspirin alone. Um, what what seems, if you sort of look at the actual curves of the event rates um, and of the complication rates, it seems like the um, the greatest bang for your buck comes with shorter than 90 days. So what most of us have adopted is a, a sort of a 21-day course of aspirin and clopidogrel um, and, then, and then bailing out to antiplatelet monotherapy thereafter. And the thing to point out there, they, they used a loading dose of clopidogrel clopidogrel, which was like 600 milligrams. And so I doubt anyone's going to be doing that in the primary care office, as you pointed out, that that would probably be done in a hospital, in a hospital setting after you've That's got exactly it. Right. It does require, right? uh, yeah, if you really want someone to be therapeutic on the clopidogrel, um, which the whole point of this is that these minor strokes and high-risk TIAs are at risk in the very near future. So the value is in treating them fast and early, um, which would require a loading dose of 600 milligrams clopidogrel. So I think yeah, even trying to logistically execute that from the primary care office would be a nightmare, right? To get your patient to the pharmacy fast enough to like right. get that medicine and in them would be impossible. Yeah. So back to Molly's patient from the first case, she was she was coming to the primary care office like six days later. That's probably not someone you would do dual antiplatelet on for because like she's already sort of from the from the what I was reading. If you're talking like most things occur in the first ten days, what are you going to give her like a couple days worth of dual antiplatelet and then tell her to go back to aspirin or and you didn't start within twenty four hours anyway, so you don't. It seems like it would be a moot point. That's right. Being outside of that 24-hour window, Matt, really sort of uh, is beyond the reach of, of current data, unfortunately. Okay. Um, so certainly as it applies to point for high-risk TIA patients, that would not be applicable. Okay. Um, I will admit there are sort of alter- there's alternative data to support um, dual antiplatelet therapy in, in certain large artery atherosclerotic scenarios. So if you uh, you know, image this patient and they happen to have a large artery stenosis, um, there may be a different reason to justify dual antiplatelets in that patient. But for point specifically, I, I would stick with the 24-hour time window. So you're saying if they had like a carotid stenosis or um, an, like an internal carotid stenosis or an MCA stenosis, something like that, you might, you might do dual antiplatelet? Yeah, that's particularly true in intracranial stenosis, so MCA severe stenosis or carotid terminus severe stenosis, um, right? The evidence of, of optimal medical therapy being dual antiplatelets uh, is sort of stems from a, a SAMPRS trial from a number of years ago, which is actually a, a clinical trial of intracranial stenting of MCA stenoses, um, but happened to find that the medical arm of this this trial did quite well, which was you know dual antiplatelets, which drives our therapy of in, in those particular patients. And you had mentioned earlier about screening patients for diabetes. Is there any research coming out that there are actually medications that do improve um, stroke outcomes? You know, we're seeing a little bit more about cardiac outcomes. 
Yeah, this is an ongoing uh, area of investigation, to be honest with you, in the stroke world um, of what diabetes agents, um, in fact, there's a, a trial ongoing now of, of semaglutide, I believe, looking at, at sort of weight loss in, in stroke patients post-stroke. Um, but there's a tremendous degree of interest in, in some of the newer diabetes agents and what potential long-term stroke benefit they may have. But I think that's um, hasn't quite pushed through to common practice just yet. I think we should maybe move into kind of a lightning round here uh, to to kind of close this out. Female risk for stroke. Is it necessary to include that in the chas 2 or can we ignore that? Sure. I think the the female risk of in the chas 2 vasc is an interesting one. I, I think if you're a, a purist, um, you would sort of include the uh, female sex in the score as its original creation intended, but I, I agree there is a, a body of literature out there sort of casting doubt over how profound a risk factor that is. Um, I think the the reason that becomes a little bit less clinically relevant these days is um, our comfort in using um, you know the the DOAX for secondary stroke prevention in patients with AFib. Um, we're willing to anticoagulate patients with such low chads 2 vasc scores. Um, as the the safety profile seems to be more and more favorable, that uh, the the relevance of that that one point either that is or isn't there if you count it for a woman just becomes a little bit less relevant in the big picture. But I, I sort of I, I respect your the doubt you're casting over the that particular component of the Chad Stubask score. And uh, when you get a heart monitor for a patient, say do a two week monitor and they only have twenty seconds of AFib, is that enough to blame that as as the cause of stroke? And do they need anticoagulation for that reason? Yeah, duration of AFib and stroke risk is is hotly debated, and certainly more. You know, there does seem to be a correlation with the AFib burden and its stroke risk. Um, so, very single brief runs of AFib are often debatable. Um, I, I would, uh, you know, I think the challenge here is that clinical trials that have monitored for AFib have used a variety of definitions of AFib. Right, many of the clinical trials that monitored for AFib would have only even counted it if the AFib duration was greater than 30 seconds. Um, it all depends on the proprietary algorithm of the monitoring device itself and its sensitivity for AFib. Um, so some trials would have not called it AFib if you didn't have five minutes of AFib. Um, I, I guess, again, this is a bit beyond the pure scope of the data, um, but I and, and many other stroke neurologists would argue that if you identify even brief runs of AFib in the wake of a stroke in a patient that otherwise does not have a clear, convincing explanation for their stroke, is I would treat that patient with an anticoagulant. Yeah, like especially what if they're if their Chad's vast score, you know, even be if you took the stroke out of it, if they have like heart failure, diabetes, hypertension, they're older, you know, any any duration of AFib, you would predict they're going to have more. So I, I feel like it's the right thing to do to anticoagulate those patients. That's right. And again, as we said before, with the uh, our growing comfort with DOAX and and sort of its its you know, reasonable safety profile. That just the barrier for entry it feels lower and lower as time goes on, as we become more and more comfortable. So, do you think of DOAX as a, a large monolith, or do you separate out, say, the factor 10A inhibitors from, let's say, the direct thrombin inhibitors? <laughs> I do. I even separate them out. I think within the 10A inhibitors, pharmacokinetically, yeah. um, absolutely Excellent. separate the two out um, that we commonly use in the states, at least. Um, Excellent. Uh, you know, I think that the stroke literature itself, you know, has 
you know, for stroke prevention, right, you look at the original three trials comparing rivaroxaban, apixaban, mm. and dabigatran all individually against um, Coumadin, um, all sort of very convincingly tell a story of, you know, all designed as non-inferiority trials, um, all very convincingly sort of provide their, their uh, you know, provide data to support their use in atrial fibrillation for long-term stroke prevention. Um, yeah, I think, but I, I think I differentiate them. I think the easiest way for a stroke neurologist to do that is to say that in the apixaban versus uh, Coumadin trial, uh, or apixaban versus warfarin trial, there is uh, not only was it designed as a non-inferiority trial, but it was the only to actually demonstrate some degree of superiority over warfarin, mm -hmm. and it was also the only to demonstrate um, improved mortality, even though it wasn't initially thought to be powered to do so. Um, so I think that as a first grab when I'm thinking specifically in the world of stroke, and I realize that may not perfectly translate to the world of VTE per se, but I see apixaban as being a, an easy option for that reason. Okay. And on either one hand or two hands, how many times have you prescribed adoxaban? That's a great question. Uh, one hand, I'd say. One um, hand. I, I think the first time where I would have really broached into this is in hypercoagulability and malignancy, um, where I'd have some debates with oncologists about their preference for that, if, if that was the case. But more and more, I actually find a lack of need to do so in hypercoagulability and malignancy, where most oncologists are becoming more and more comfortable with uh, a variety of oral anticoagulants, actually. All right. Thinking about prognosis, so going back to our second case, if she had persistent arm weakness after the hospitalization, when would you expect her to plateau in terms of improving and regaining her strength? Yeah, improvement after stroke is always a really challenging thing to deal with in the primary care office or in the neurology office as we follow these folks long term. Um, the majority of uh, strength improvement in particular uh, happens early. So you could imagine a tremendous amount of improvement in the first couple of months. Um, you know, the historical teaching was that the majority of strength improvement would happen by six months. Um, and that is largely true. Um, but I find that that timeline to be tremendously troubling. Um, I think when you tell patients that, you know, when people hear, oh, the majority of improvement happens in six months, what your patient leaves your office thinking is that there's a brick wall at six months. And if I don't get where I need to get, uh, I'm in trouble and I'm, I'm not getting any better. And I think that it often does uh, a bit of a disservice to our patients because it, it superimposes a tremendous degree of anxiety in the course of the recovery. Um, and the reality is, while the literature would argue that that is true for the majority of the recovery and the majority of patients, it is absolutely not all of the recovery and it is absolutely not applied to all of our patients. Uh, I think we all probably have seen a tremendous amount of patients, tremendous number of patients who've continued to recover for months, if not years beyond the stroke. So while the majority will happen in the first six months, there's absolutely still room to continue improving. I wanted to ask a quick question about silent infarcts. This is so not related to either cases we presented, but it's it's not uncommon that we maybe image somebody for some other reason and we see that like, oh, it looks like they had a prior stroke they never really knew they had any symptoms of it. Does that, if you see that, do you kind of put the patients on these same medications, make sure they're on an aspirin, kind of optimize their cholesterol and other risk factors? Yeah, silent silent infarcts, or, or sometimes referred to as covert strokes, mm -hmm. are uh, is a, a very interesting topic these days, and one that is growing rapidly. Um, so there is a, a bit of controversy over to over the answers I would give you. But um, depending on the specifics of what the neuroimaging looks like, um, yes, I would say I often, in, in the case of a very clear, I'll give you sort of an extreme example where someone's, you know, imaging shows evidence of multifocal chronic embolic appearing strokes that were silent. 
Um, that's a, a scenario that in my mind, absolutely warrants a similar stroke workup, in particular, an extensive cardioembolic stroke workup, because whether they had symptoms or not, they clearly have, they have that radiographic evidence. That's a little bit different than the patient that has, uh, you know, that just has chronic small vessel disease, where, where absolutely I'm still worried about their underlying vascular risk factors. And I know that correlates with an increased risk of future stroke. Um, but in terms of that immediate workup uh, that has to be done, that, that might be a slightly different patient that has the the very convincing multifocal embolic strokes. Okay. I think the simplest answer I could give you if I take another shot at that, uh, Matt, is to actually say that, yes, if you want to be cautious, I would view covert stroke or silent stroke as a stroke, and doing a stroke workup in those patients is uh, is a very reasonable and conservative approach. I like I it. I think this has been great. Yeah, I, I think we covered everything that I was hoping to. Yeah, I, I mean... This was, I, I certainly learned a ton here. This was, this was amazing. Too. Thanks guys. It was uh, fun for me as well. I appreciate it. Chris, we usually, before we let our guests go, we usually like to give you, is there anything that you wanted to plug or any resources that you wanted to point our audience towards just for further reading or just to help them when they're tr- kind of taking care of patients who had stroke or TIA? Um, that's a great point. You know, I, I think, you know, I, I certainly don't think I have anything else to plug, but I, I would say that there's some interesting resources out there for, uh, you know, non-stroke neurologists managing strokes and other vascular issues. Um, this only immediately comes to mind because this is going to be published in the near future, but it's sort of a, a decision-making in neurology textbook um, uh, developed by Brett Kuchera at the University of Penn. Um, I helped manage the, uh, or edit the, the vascular neurology section of that book for him. And, and it's an interesting, I, I, I really actually enjoyed working on this book because it's uh, very simple one-page chapters, if you want to call them chapters, but they're essentially flow chart or flow diagram approaches to different vascular neurology problems. So there's one for TIA and there's one for stroke and there's one for, uh, you know, AVM or vascular abnormalities or it gets, you know, starts to really get in the weeds. But some of the the really high common ones like stroke and TIA um, are are sometimes flowcharts that can be tremendously useful for internists. All right, Chris. Well, we've kept you way too long. Uh, Again, thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to hopefully someday I can meet you in person. That sounds like a plan. It was my pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Quite yummy. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We are committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garp Scarbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew and Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoyblein. And uh, you should thank yourself, Molly. You did a lot of work putting this together, and you did a great job. Thanks, Matt. And I also want to do thank my friend, Dr. Grace Camberas, for uh, getting us such a wonderful guest. Uh, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And please, a moment of silence for Paul Williams. And good night. <laughs> good night. <laughs>